the inerrant, magnificent Word of God. This morning, if you turn to Luke chapter 10, we'll pick up in the 17th verse. And I want to remind you that as we have shared throughout this particular study, Luke is unique in the Gospels in that there are a tremendous body of words that are contained in Luke's Gospel that are actually not found in any of the other Gospels. And we have now entered uh, that portion of Luke's Gospel from the point that we're at now, actually from the end of chapter 9, all the way into the end of chapter 18 or very close to it, are words that only Luke records. And in the process of reading the Gospels together, you'll find that Jesus actually makes three trips to Jerusalem during this period of time. And Luke actually gives us the background information to those three trips. And so what you're reading is what Jesus did during those trips that he went into Jerusalem to minister prior to his trial, his beating, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And you're going to find that he does a whole bunch of teaching. And he does it in front of just about anyone and everyone. And in fact, he's in what would have been the most uh, prominent city of the Near East. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, He's going to spend a tremendous amount of time very near uh, the city of Jerusalem, Zion's holy hill, from which in Bethany you can see. And to give you a little background information this morning, as the Lord would travel up from the Jericho region, uh, we're going to get to a story that involves that city this morning. As you travel from the lower part of the Jordan River Valley, which is where the Dead Sea is located, it's more than 1,300 feet below sea level. Jerusalem at the highest point uh, sits roughly 2,500 feet above sea level. So it's a 4,000 foot climb uh, to reach up to Jerusalem and consequently going the other way is down as you will see this morning. But as you arrive in the vicinity of Jerusalem, as you come up through the pass, it leads to a small gap between two mountain tops and the really very large hills to us. You would have to the north Mount Scopus. If you go there today, Hebrew University sits on Mount Scopus. And just directly to the south of that is the Mount of Olives. And just directly to the south of that, and slightly towards the Dead Sea to the east, is a little tiny community of Bethany. And Jesus seems to headquarters his ministry, not in Jerusalem itself, but just outside of Jerusalem, an easy walk. You could make it in a couple of hours, uh, if you were all the way at the other side of Bethany, into Jerusalem itself. And in coming to Jerusalem, he would reach the eastern gate. And the eastern gate or the golden gate, you cannot get through it today. It was walled up by the Turks, by the Moors, by those Muslims who took over the city of Jerusalem. During the period of the Crusades, it was actually a walled city at that time as well. And so Jesus is going to spend now the rest of this time ministering to the disciples, and to multitudes who gather, and to a very specific group of people whom we meet today. And that is the religious legalists. 
the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers of the day. And I want to give you one more piece of background information. When you read the word lawyer in your New Testament, you need to make sure that you don't include all lawyers in that. Okay? Jesus isn't anti-attorneys or lawyers. But the lawyers of that day were largely religious lawyers. And so you need to understand it from that perspective. They were often members of the Levitical group, the Levitical order, and they were the preservers of the law. And so when you see lawyers, it's better for you to think legalist than lawyer. Otherwise, you may end up hating on all attorneys. And there are some good ones. Amen? And so the Lord this morning, we're going to hopefully have Him minister to us as we read His Word from verse 17 to verse 37 and the study I've entitled, The Calm Before the Storm. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for this time. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And God, as we turn our attention to it, we pray that you would speak to us and bless us and anoint, Lord, our ears to hear, our minds to take in, our hearts to to grab hold of, Lord, your precious word. We're grateful for it, Lord. We know that it has the power to change us and mold us, and we ask that you would make it do so. And so, God, we ask now that you would just quiet our hearts and our minds of the things of this day and the week that's passed that we might hear from heaven. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, first, we hear the good news. And it's interesting to me, as I think of my own life, so very often, ministry is filled with very high highs and sometimes some pretty low lows. And at times, you kind of go from just this joyous sense of, man, God is at work and He's doing things, also to getting the absolute stuffing beat out of you. Amen? You just you wake up and all of a sudden Satan is there to greet you at the door. It may be through some relationship. It might be through some thing in your life, maybe some issue that you're dealing with, and, and you kind of go back and forth. We call that spiritual warfare. Amen? Sometimes you're just, you're, you're doing good. You're doing great. You wake up and, man, God is good. And then the next day it's like, oh, God, where are you? We're going to see that in the life of the disciples a lot because they were not immune to it. And just because they were taught personally by the Lord doesn't mean that their lives weren't filled with things that at times you just go, man, how how come they're going through that? So hopefully that will be a help to you this morning as well. Verse 17, and it says there, And then the seventy returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're just, they're on fire. They've gone on this little missions trip. They're preparing the way of the Lord. They have gone out and demons have fled as they've come with the good news. So they're coming back. They're pumped. They're ready to get going with the ministry that God's called them to. And then he said to them, be a little bit careful, guys. Zealousness can be good, but it can also set you up to get pasted right in the chops the next time the enemy decides that he's going to come after you. And then he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, 
I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And so he's reiterating, hey, guys, you, you have power. There's no question. You, you have the ability to overcome these things in my name. But notice the word in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Why, why would he say, you know, I, I've given you power over all of these issues in your life, but be real careful. Because sometimes we can start to rest on our victories, and we forget that we're in a war. We forget that the enemy has come to kill and to destroy, and that regardless of any victory that you've had, the enemy's not done until Jesus wraps him up in chains and throws him into the pit. And so he's very alive, he's very well, and he continues to fight against you as well. And so he goes on to say that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen? At the end of the day, that's the reason you rejoice. Not because you had some great spiritual victory or you overcome some great deed. Those are wonderful things and do by all means give God the glory for them. But do not rest there because the enemy is going to still come after you. And as I, as I think on my own life, I can tell you that the times that I have been the most beat up have almost always followed some victory. There's something wonderful that's happened in my life, and I let my guard down, and all of a sudden, it's the sucker punch from Satan. And you're doubling over. It's like, where did that come from? Now notice what he says. For in that hour, the Lord Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Remember, he's... Always about using the, the, the lightest among us to, to give us an example of how we need to receive spiritual truth because we have a tendency to overcomplicate things and that's going to be what happens next. We overthink things. We turn into legalists. We turn into uh, the, the religious lawyers. We turn into the spiritual nitpickers. The ones who, well, you know, it's got this going on, it's got that going on. And, and we're going to see the example of how the Lord deals with this area of our lives in a moment. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good uh, in your sight that all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. He's making a plain statement. He said, there's something that goes on between Father God and God the Son that only the Father God and God the Son know. We can't know that fully. And we will not know that fully on this earth. And if anyone ever comes to you and says they've got it all figured out about how God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit work in unison together, all three being God and yet unified, then you can just look at them and pray for them. Because I can tell you they don't know. Because Jesus said no one will know except God the Father and God the Son. How that all works out. And some of the deepest theologic arguments that we wrestle with on this earth are because people have said, I know. And quite frankly, we don't know. Sometimes we have a good idea, sometimes we don't, and sometimes we're, we're dumb as bricks. You know, we just look at stuff and we're like, oh, how did that happen? Who is the Father except the Son? 
and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately. So there's a multitude and there's disciples. This is a mixed group. Blessed are the eyes which see these things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And so initially we have Jesus speaking to the disciples specifically. And, you know, of course it was amazing that the demons had been fleeing from the disciples, from the apostles. They had reason to rejoice in that. And he's not talking about we should, you know, just disrespect the good things that God's doing in our lives. He's just simply saying, be careful. You can rest on your laurels. You can get caught up. Uh, in, in kind of staying around yesterday's manna and forgetting to go out today and pick up some more for tomorrow, amen? You know, for the morning. Now, the Lord wasn't quite as taken aback as the disciples were here. And, of course, this whole promise that's found there in verse 19, I give you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions over all of the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. That is actually a future promise. It's not something that anybody has seen in totality and in fullness yet, but it will occur and it will happen to the Jews during the tribulation. In fact, we have a very clear picture in Revelation chapter 7 and also in chapter 14 of a group of Jewish evangelists, about 144,000 of them, that will go throughout the world at that time during the tribulation and they will be unstoppable, completely and totally. But for right now... We kind of have some victories, and every once in a while we have a defeat or two. Amen? Well, at least I do. Maybe you don't have any defeats. I have some defeats every once in a while. I'm not paying attention. I'm not watching what the Lord's doing. I'm not being spiritually attuned to the things that are going on around me. And all of a sudden, bam, right in the tip of the nose. I, I, I have an affinity for the, the movie Pearl Harbor. And for those of you that have seen it, there's a time when he's got the broken nose and he pops open the champagne cork and he goes, oh, that hurts. That's kind of the way I am sometimes. It's like you're just not looking for it. And it's just the simplest, littlest things can, can just get you right there on the tip of the nose. And you're going, man, where did that come from? It's because the enemy hates you. The enemy wants to destroy you. And his plans are every single day to try and make your life miserable. And so some days, those things get deflected. You've got a couple extra angels going around, and you've prayed up, and you're doing all that you need to do. And some days, your guard's down, and boom, right in the tip of an already sore nose, the fist goes. So the Lord is here with his rejoicing messengers. I would also encourage you, as you look at this, Jesus is very clearly saying, I'm God. He's declaring his deity here. Notice what he says. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Who's his Father? Jehovah God. And he says he knows everything. The phrase that's used there, he's saying, I, I have every bit of information my Father has. He's declaring himself equal to be God. And so he begins to, to say something that I think if we lay hold of it, you can kind of get a picture where this is going next. He says, look, the prophets would have loved to have seen and heard what you've seen and heard. Can you imagine Moses and Elijah actually getting to travel with Jesus? Remember where they've just come from the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah are there? 
they didn't get the privilege of walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and sitting down and being taught by Jesus. They would have loved to have had that happen. Can you imagine Samuel sitting down and talking with Jesus? Can you imagine David shouting? He danced before the ark. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the one who declared the Messiah to actually sit down with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And so he's really saying to the disciples, look, you guys are very privileged. You're very special in that regard. But don't rest in it. Verse 25. The joy... And now the criticism. You see, what really begins to happen now is is the battle is going to ensue. And I want you to notice the nature of, of this particular argument. There's a question, and it's proposed by a certain lawyer. And that certain lawyer asks a question that many people to this day still ask. What must I do to be saved? How can I inherit eternal life. It is the question. And so notice verse 25 as we move on. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. So in this group, he speaks to the disciples. He kind of gives them a little warning on the side. And then here's this body of other people and in them some scribes, Pharisees, the legal types saying. And notice that it's phrased as a test. Can I give you a little secret here? He doesn't really want the answer. He's actually trying to trap Jesus. He's not looking for an answer to the question. He's looking to get Jesus to appear foolish. And it's not going to work out well for him. Never does when you try and put one over on God. And he tested him saying, Teacher, he uses the sign of respect. The word is rabbi. Rabbi? Teacher? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I love how Jesus handles this guy. Because you see, our initial response very often to questions like this is to get engaged in a word battle. To haggle over the details. To begin to lay out your understanding of your doctrinal position and how you got there. Notice that Jesus does not do that. It's the reason that he's talking about babes being able to receive these things, because it is this simple. And he says to him, Jesus now speaking, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He turns the whole thing back on him. He knew what was in that man's heart. And so he says to that man, look, You know what it says. Why don't you tell me what you think it means? And so he answered and said, and I love this, because you can picture him, I got him. The lawyer's sitting there, oh, he's done now. It's kind of like the person who tries to three-move chess checkmate on like a guy like Gary Fisher. You know, he sets up the first move, and he's, oh, I got him. He's going to, and then all of a sudden he's like, whoop, how did that happen? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with your mind, all of it, and your neighbor as yourself. Notice what Jesus says. And you've got to love this. You've answered rightly. 
Do this and you will live. What did Jesus just say to him? He gave him an impossibility, did he not? Let me prove that to you. You see, when you read these passages, you have, in essence, the entire Word of God boiled down to a couple of verses. They're Leviticus 19.18, Deuteronomy 6.5. You have two conditions that are humanly impossible to keep. Amen? You can't do it. No one but Jesus has ever loved God with all of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. That means that every moment of every day, you always do what pleases God. Anybody in here ever done that? Didn't think so. No hands went up. Why? Because it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. But Jesus has done it for you. Second thing he says, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, I love this part as well. Because if it weren't bad enough that you can't do the first part, when you add the second part and the way it's constructed here in the original language, it's not either or, it's both simultaneously. And your neighbor as yourself. And then you get the question that the attorney is just going, Ah, I'm back on top again. I'll ask him a question like, who's my neighbor? This is what higher critics do. This is what spiritual nitpickers do. This is what religionists do. This is what legalists do. This is what people who are hypercritical do. This is what people who don't want the actual answer do. In debating, it's called the deflective question. You, you kind of deflect it. You push it off the other direction because you know that you just got your answer handed to you, but you don't like the answer. The questioner is an expert in the law. He, he's got a bunch of letters after his name. You can imagine this guy graduated from two or three seminaries. He's got a Ph.D., a K.F.C., and a one, two, three after his name. He's got all kinds of little acronyms there. He's... He's like top dog. And so from his perspective, because he looks at these things, well, something's got to be done for eternal life. you got to do something to have eternal life. And what Jesus does is He hands Scripture right back to him. He says, do this and you shall live. You're correct. He just handed the man an impossible task. Because nobody can do it. No one has ever loved his neighbor as himself. I can prove this to you. You and I, we go to your house, and we start piddling around at your house and doing some, some work, and I get out my chainsaw, and I start cutting a hole in the wall of your house. You're going to stop me. I think. It's either that or your brain ain't working. Why? Because you're the one that's going to freeze to death tonight. It's your house. And you're not concerned. You don't know why I'm cutting a hole in your wall. You know, maybe I'm putting in a doggy door. So I'm going to do something nice for you. But you're going to think, hey, what's he doing? This is going to affect me. See, if you really loved me more than you, you would just say, well, God bless you. Cut a hole in my wall. You see, we don't love people like we love ourselves. We'd like to say we do, but at the end of the day, you're going to look out after you first. 
That's what's going to happen. No one has ever perfectly done that, save one. His name is Jesus. No one has ever loved God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. That means everything you is. Okay, All that you are, all that you have, everything you possess, all of it goes into loving God. Now, I can tell you that's not true with any of us. There's little things we hold back from God. I'll do everything but that, Lord. Don't send me to Africa. I'm not going. Not going to happen. Definitely don't take away my prime rib. I can live with a lot of things, but not that God. And so Jesus is, is saying back to him, He wants to justify Himself. Now I want you to see the question in verse 25. Because what comes next is a passage of Scripture that we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want you to understand why Jesus speaks it. It's the answer to the question in verse 25. It's not meant to be taken by itself out of context. It's the answer... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus now is going to give him, if you will, uh, the grace question. And he, he says, but now the man that's asked these questions says, but he, wanting to justify, he, he's, his goose is cooked. He's beginning to understand Jesus has got the upper hand. And he said to Jesus, you see how he's trying to get out of it? What must I do? He quotes the killer passages of Scripture. You ever had somebody do that to you? They've got the definitive passage of Scripture on whatever it is that you're talking about. And they boom, boom. If you have Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house, they have exactly six Scriptures that they will repeat on a normal basis. That's all they got. And when you get down to, yeah, well, what does John 1, 1 say? says he's God, doesn't it? Well, not my Bible. That's because the Bible you have, you're the only ones that have it. It's a mistranslation. You see, people like to think they have the spiritual upper hand, and this guy's going to get his right now from Jesus. And then Jesus answered and said, you can see it's the actual answer to the question. A certain man went down from Jerusalem. Now you know why I told you where he's at. Went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's descending down through this long winding wadi that leads between the two hills, Mount, Mount of Olives and Mount Scopus. He's heading back towards Jericho, which is down near the Dead Sea. And he fell among thieves. That road was largely believed to be one of the most dangerous places in the old world. And the reason was this. When Herod built the temple, you have to remember that Herod was responsible for building the temple that sat on the Temple Mount. He did it not so much for the Jews as he did for his own self. And he employed at the time of its building about 40,000 laborers to make sure it got done. And so in building that temple, when it was finished, he simply dismissed those 40,000 people. They had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so many of them because they were starving, turned to robbery. And so at this time, this whole area was littered. If you left Jerusalem, you better go in a caravan. You better travel with other people, because if you traveled alone and you were not of the Levites and the priests who lived in Jericho, that was where they went when they weren't serving in the temple, if you weren't in that group, you were fair game. 
And so they went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. That was normal. That's what you, you could expect. And now, by chance, is there anything that's a chance as far as God's concerned? No. God is absolutely sovereign. There are no chances. There's no random chance processes. There is no chance. Everything from God's perspective, He either knows about or directly causes to happen. And so there is no chance. But now by chance, from a human perspective, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Jesus makes a couple of plain statements here. And it's going to become painfully clear what Jesus is getting at as he answers the mass question. Likewise, a Levite. So first you have a member of the ruling class of the most religious people on earth. And then you have a member of the brightest group of learned men on earth at the time. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Now, I want you to see something here. They absolutely, unmistakably, know that this man is in trouble. There was no no mix-up here. They weren't thinking, well, he's going to be fine. They're looking at him going, man, this dude's going to die. He's toast. His life's over. You see, that's what religion and academics can do for you. People sometimes have had so much spiritual training that they can see something as obvious as a man who's dying and walk right past. People can have so much intelligence that they can see a man who's dying and walk right past him. But a certain Samaritan, and now you know why you have heard why the Samaritans were such an influence in that region. The Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. Amen? And it is mostly the Jews who hate the Samaritans. The Jews are like, well, these guys are half-breeds. They caved in. They married Assyrians. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Notice the word and circle it, please, came. Because God set these divine appointments up. There was no mistaking where they were going to go. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Aren't you glad that when you were dead, near death, on the side of the road, that the Lord Jesus had compassion on you? Because when you were laying in that heap on the side of the road, you were no grand deal to Jesus. He'd look at you and go, man, look what I can get out of Jeff. I was exactly as Ephesians said, dead in my trespasses and sins. I was dead. I was laying on the side of the road, dead. And so in answering this man's question, this legalist's question, 
And so he went to him. Why would a Samaritan go to a Jew? They learn nothing but pain and hatred and discrimination and violence. They had fought an entire war because of their differences and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine and set him on his own animal. You see, if you were relatively well off at the time, if you had your own animal, uh, you could avoid the arduous journey on foot because it was straight down, very rocky, not a good road, and tough to walk. And so you could ride on your own animal if you had one, if you were well off. And so this is a man of some means and brought him to an inn, which would have been just like the inn at Jesus' time, probably nothing more than a house. But it was a place where someone would receive guests, a lot like we would call a bed and breakfast, and took care of him. And on the next day, so he stays the first day and takes care of the guy himself. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. That was a day's wages at the time. A single coin that was the equivalent of everything that you would make in a day. You would get one of those if you worked for somebody. Gives up a first a day of his time and gives up two days of his pay and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I don't care what the debt is. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever it is, he gives no limitation on it whatsoever. None. Zero. When I come again, I will repay you. No matter what debt is racked up on the benefit and behest of this man, whatever it is, I'll pay it. Make sure he's taken care of. Sound like anybody else you know? And so, which of these three, now the answer to the question. Which of these three, he turns back to the attorney, to the lawyer, to the legalist, to the Levite, who popped out the Old Testament and said, Man, I got the answers to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbors yourself. Oh, and by the way, who's my neighbor? Anybody and everybody. Even the people that hate you. Even the people who have vowed to live their lives to make yours miserable. Anybody who's in need. You see, Jesus was coming back at him now with the answer. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Remember what the question was? Who's my neighbor? Can you imagine what this... He could not spit out the word Samaritan. He doesn't even say it. The guy has the opportunity. Well, the Samaritan, of course. He couldn't even say the word. But he knew the answer. That's how grace works in our lives, folks. God backs us into a spiritual corner and there is no way out but the grace of God. 
God puts us in circumstances and situations where there is no answer but Jesus. Amen? That's how I came to Christ. There is no answer but you, Lord. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And no amount of my doing is going to fix what ails me. And then to top it all off, and he said, he who showed mercy on him, the lawyer gets it right. And then Jesus said to him, you talk about getting backed into the grace corner, go and do likewise. You see, without directly answering the question, he answered the question, didn't he? And he drew the man in. You see, it is a story of ruin. This man travels in a place that he probably shouldn't have been going. We don't know why he got there or how he got there. Isn't that your story? This is not my story? You know, when I talk to people whose lives are a mess, most of the time they can't tell me why it is that they got there. You know, how did you get there? I don't know. I'm an idiot. It's the most common explanation. Yeah. See some hands going up. Not too bright. Went someplace I shouldn't go. Did something I shouldn't have done. Hung out with people I shouldn't have been with. Amen? You don't have an answer for it. You're not sitting there going, wow, well, you know, oh, it was just my whole life story and it all culminated in this. It's just craziness. It doesn't happen that way. You make bad decisions in life. You go places you shouldn't go. You do things you shouldn't do. And a very large percentage of the time, you talk to somebody who's addicted to heroin, they didn't reach a point, boy, you know, I just want to become a heroin addict. Just thinking today, I got up and, boy, I just, I really want to ruin my life. Generally speaking, people don't do that. Well, I just thought I'd get involved in gang activity, so maybe I could get shot. I woke up this morning, I just, man, I would love to rob banks for a avocation. I just am, I like bank robbing. Nobody does those kind of things. We end up in places that we shouldn't go because sometimes we're not the sharpest tools in the shed. And we do things we shouldn't do. And what we need is not a lecture on how we got there. Amen? This poor guy didn't need a lecture on the finer points of theology. He needed grace. He needed mercy. He needed love. He needed care. Well, brother, you better be baptized. Get up. We've got to baptize you because you can't, nothing's going to happen until you're baptized. You don't have a King James Bible? Oh! <gasps> Guy starts walking off. You, you see how people can get? You start telling, look, well, you need to go to Calvary Chapel. That's your problem. Ain't going to fix anything. If you're here and you're a child of God this morning, you have been saved by grace through faith. And even that faith was a gift from God so that you could believe and be saved. You see what Jesus was saying? Look, guys. No amount of religious learning is going to fix what ails you. No amount of doing can take care of what the problem is. This guy was rejected like everyone's rejected. Now we have different circumstances that have come into our lives because of the rejection that the world has. But the fact of the matter is, each of us is in need of the same thing. And it's the grace of God. 
you see, you have here the rights of man's religion. It's rooted in what most people would call truth and tradition. Can't help a lost soul. Can I tell you that? It can't help a lost soul. What a lost soul needs is God's grace. The Levite had all the rules. Remember what he said to him? Look, here's the two commandments. These are the big deals. You do them, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, I can't do this. How do I love my neighbor as myself? By the grace of God. Amen? That's what happens. That's the only way you can love your neighbor as yourself. It's the only way you can love yourself is by grace. Amen? Most of us actually don't like ourselves. There are some things about us that we're like, man, I wish that would change. I don't even get along with me. How can I get along with you? Think about it for a second. If we're honest, there's not a person in here that doesn't have something in your life that you don't like. And yet, throughout your entire life, you have absolutely not been able to totally change that. That's why you need grace. That's why you need Jesus. You're going to go through all those things for the rest of your days, you're still never going to fix them all. You see, both these men showed up and what they really represented was religion, not relationship. And what that man on the side of the road needed, the answer to what must I do to be saved, is to have the grace of God poured out in your life. The mercy of God come to you in a huge way. Because that guy got himself into that situation. He was on the side of the road because he chose the wrong road. Amen? That's the only reason. That's all we know about this guy. He picked the wrong road on the wrong day, and he fell in with the wrong people. Sound like you? Sounds like me. I've been on the wrong road the wrong time with the wrong people. Doing the wrong thing. And no amount of somebody being really, really, well, Jeff, you're an idiot. Well, I know that. That's how I got here. You're not very... I know that. That's how I got here. You see what I'm saying? You don't need to be reminded at that point in time of how you got there. You need the answer. What must I do to be saved? What can I do to inherit eternal life? You see the picture? That was the real question. It becomes a story of redemption. And I love this part of it. You see... When you, when you look at this, of course, it's a picture of the gospel. It's also a picture of how we're to live our lives as the body of Christ. Yes, we must speak the truth. And yes, we must speak that truth in love. And at times, that love can be quite direct. But it nonetheless is the truth of God and the love of God that transforms people's understanding so they can receive the grace of God. And so, notice how the Lord wasn't through with the lawyer. He says, so which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the guy that fell? Puts it back in his ballpark. And he says, you know what? I think you can do that too. You see the paraphrase there? Go and do likewise. What did he do but exhibit grace? What did he do but exhibit mercy? What did he do but possess faith? Nothing. 
He didn't do anything. He was because of grace. You see, the, the man couldn't get what he needed while he was dying. It was impossible. And unless somebody came and gave him what he needed, which is what happens when you get saved, amen? Jesus comes and gives you something you can't purchase by yourself. Something you cannot get a hold of by any other means. You can't earn your way to heaven. And neither can I. It is the grace of God by faith in Christ Jesus that brings you into a right relationship with the Lord. You you see, the law says, do this, do that. People say, do this and you'll be right. And Jesus basically says, no need, I've already done it. I took care of that at the cross. And so he's presenting the argument that by the works of man, there isn't a thing you can do to please God. That's why Jesus was going to Jerusalem, to take care of what we couldn't take care of ourselves. To pay the price that you can't pay, that I can't pay. To give us the beauty of grace. And so, what can I do? The answer to the lawyer's question was, nothing. You can't do a thing. But receive the grace of God. And if you do that, then you're going to be healed. God's going to do a work in your life that only He can do. He's going to mend you. He's going to pay the price for it. He'll take care of your debts because by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Nobody can boast about it. And when you have it, it's going to be all good when you get to heaven. That's why He told the disciples, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because that's what actually matters. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace that we've received. Lord, thank You for the joy that makes us full when we ponder the life that we'll have eternally, God. That You would bless us while we're on this earth and then bless us with heaven when we leave. Lord, nothing we can do to earn it. Lord, we truly have been saved in spite of us. Lord, we took the wrong path and ended up waylaid on the side of the road too. And you came and met us on the road and offered to pay our debt, clean us up, bandage us, put us back on the road to recovery. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful picture. Lord, help us to not rest in the victories we had yesterday. Lord, we know the battle will come. The rough roads will happen. But we also know that greater is he who's in us and that you have overcome the world. We love you for that. We bless you for that. Fill us with your grace, we pray. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.